Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Right, welcome back, 403-974-8255. So, interesting development in this uh, ongoing lawsuit against the CHL, uh, the Canadian Hockey League, Major Junior A Hockey in, in Canada. The lawsuit is arguing that these players are employees and should be paid minimum wage. The league maintains their student-athletes, and we reimburse them in, in a lot of different ways. Or they benefit from being a part of our organization. For every year they play, we pay for a year of their university. So there's scholarships uh, and other programs as well. So part of the question, though, is how profitable are these teams? I mean, these teams are a business after all. You've got to pay money to go see these games. Uh, there's a piece up at tsn.ca today looking at one team in particular, the Niagara Ice Dogs which a few years ago moved to a bigger arena in St. Catharines, which meant a lot of revenue. 2016, the Ice Dogs brought in $4.6 million in revenue, generating a profit of $643,000. Now, the Calgary Hitmen, for example, which are part of the Calgary Sports and Entertainment Corporation, owns the Flames and the Stampeders, too. They brought in about the same. Uh, over $4 million in revenue in 2015-2016. Uh, but these numbers show that the Hitman actually lost about $387,000, 2015-2016. So we're seeing all of this information because uh, these uh, financial statements were tabled in court yesterday. A judge earlier this month here in Calgary ordered that that information be disclosed. And so the documents were filed this week. Ted Charney is the leading lawyer on this lawsuit. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mr. Charney, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mr. Breckenbridge. How are you? Uh, very well, sir. Thank you for joining us here today. So, um, as I say, this is a significant development in this case. What have you seen so far? We have about 7,000 pages of financial records for the clubs in the WHL and the OHL, and thankfully I did not have the task of going through them, but we hired a forensic accountant who did, and he's prepared a report on the uh, WHL clubs, which we used at uh, the certification hearing that was uh, that took place in Calgary uh, in the last few weeks. I just got back from Calgary, actually, and we're starting the case in, o in the Ontario class action in Toronto on March 21st. And Mr. Smith, our forensic accountant, is just completing a report on the OHL teams, including the ice dogs that you just mentioned. Uh, and we're just looking at his results uh, now as I speak with you. We just got them actually. Well, and it seems to me, at least on the surface, and you can tell me if you disagree, that there's a lot of discrepancy among CHL teams. There are some teams in bigger markets that seem as though they generate a lot of revenue, and there are some teams in, in much smaller markets uh, that really don't. Is that fair to say? Yes. It's, it's fair to say that um, there is some, uh, there's, there are differences amongst the clubs in terms of their gross revenues. But uh, no matter what the revenues are, for the most part, uh, 
they all seem to manage to just break even or lose money according to their financial statements. So, you know, you have clubs that are making four, five, or six million a year, and uh, many of them just happen to break even. And then you have clubs that are between 1.5 and 2 million, and they manage to break even too. So apparently you can field a competitive team of 20 to 25 players for under 2 million in a small market, but in a big market, it costs you 5 or 6 million to field the same team. So what does that tell you about the financial statements? It tells you they're entirely unreliable in understanding what the real operating expenses are of some of these clubs, because um, there is incentives for any business to... Um, try and avoid paying as much tax as you legally can. And one way of doing that, of course, is to increase your expenses. And there's different ways to increase your expenses. I'm not saying any of them are unlawful, but they don't necessarily reflect true operating expenses in the context of whether these clubs can afford to pay an extra 280000 to $300,000 a year in minimum wage, which is why we're having this discussion. The only reason this is coming up at all is because the clubs are pleading that they can't afford to pay minimum wage. That's their central defense to these class actions. Basically, they can't afford it. Right. And you got a situation like here in Calgary where the Calgary Hitmen are owned by a bigger sports company that also owns an NHL team and a CFL team. So do the financial statements that are specifically pertaining to the Calgary Hitmen really tell the true story of this overall company's profitability? I'd like to answer the question, but uh, we never got the financial statements or the tax returns for the Calgary Hitmen. We got one page internal income statement that they yeah, prepared. I'm looking at the same thing here. Yeah. They did not give us their tax returns or their financial statements. And what I recall about that is that because they're part of a bigger organization, they're those documents are prepared by other corporations, and therefore we never we never got them. So I can't answer your question for you. Okay. So what happens now that this, this information's been made public? What's the next step in the court case? Well, um, the next step in a class action, the first step in any class action, is to ask a judge to certify it, which involves a judge looking at the case and deciding whether or not it's appropriate to go forward as a class action. If it's certified, what it means is that the plaintiffs can go to court and have a trial, and whatever the decision is, it will affect equally every single class member. So in this case, we go to trial in the WHL, and we ask the trial judge whether the players are employees. And if the judge says yes, then all of the current and former players uh, who are eligible to participate would be employees and entitled to get their back wages. And if the judge says no, then case over, and everything goes ahead as normal in the, uh, in the leaks. Okay, so explain then your contention, why you believe it is that, that these young men should be considered employees. Well, historically, they were considered to be employees by all of these leagues. The standard player agreements going back to the 70s and court decisions from the 70s and 80s refer to them as employees, and the contracts from those days, the standard player agreements, are called employment contracts. Nothing's really changed since then in terms of the duties and obligations the players have to the teams, but there have been linguistic reformulations of these agreements over the years for various reasons, but even into the 90s. The agreement still referred to them in many ways as employees, and then there's a tax court decision from 1990 called McCrimmon Holdings, I'm sorry, from 2000 called McCrimmon Holdings, where there was a full trial, and the defendants ran this defense up the totem pole about uh, whether they're amateur student-athletes or some other kind of legal creation, and the trial judge found they were employees. But the clubs ignored the decision and continued to treat their players as if they were not employees for certain purposes, specifically to pay wages, but they were still issuing T4 slips 
and other legal documents where they treated their players as employees. So, for example, the players were getting $100 biweekly, $50 a week in their standard player agreement for their services, and they would get a, what everyone called a paycheck until 2013, actually, uh, with T4 deductions for many of the clubs. But uh, So the clubs understood that they were treating them as employees, but they didn't make the leap of understanding that there's something called minimum wage. And then around 2014, the leagues got together and decided to pass a new standard player agreement. And imagine this, they line up 1,500 players one day in the locker rooms, and they all make them sign a new agreement. And now the $100 biweekly payment is called a reimbursement of expenses, even though you don't have to submit any proof to get reimbursed in the WHL. And all of the language in the agreement is changed so that there's no reference to employment uh, we also have documents from the OHL where the Ontario Hockey League sent a directive out to all the clubs around that time saying to stop treating your players like employees, stop issuing T4s, get their payments off of your salary ledgers, and so on. So it was an organized attempt to recast all the players so that they were no longer considered to be employees, even though they all do the same thing. They play hockey. Nothing else in the agreements changed. So there's a lot of evidence over the years and the decades that these players are, in fact, an employee, employees. And we say they're employees because they are the source of the entertainment product which drives these leagues. Their services, their labor, uh, is what causes all of these clubs to make profits and to generate revenues. <clears throat> I'm not sure if you're, if you're aware of this or if your listeners are aware of this, but last year in the WHL, the total revenues generated from the players' labor was $87.8 million. And in that year, the players received absolutely no wages, no compensation for their services for what they did during the year. Uh, you mentioned the education benefits, and yes, some of them may get that benefit down the road. It's a lose-it-or-use-it benefit, but it's, it doesn't justify not paying the players minimum wage. And in the OHL last year, it was almost $64 million in revenue. So we're talking big business, real money, all on the backs of the players, but they don't get paid. And we say they should because they are effectively employees. Does the NCAA consider them to be employees? Why, no. why are they not eligible for scholarships in the U.S.? Once they play one game in the CHL leagues, they are no longer eligible for a scholarship in the United States because the NCCA regulations considers them to be professionals once they play one game in these leagues. And is that relevant to the argument you're making, or is that a separate it, issue? It, it, it's, it's an example of another league or another organization which considers the players to be employees because effectively if they're professional, then they're employees. Uh, but we don't, we're not relying on that as, as the basis for the case. That's just an example of some of the implications for the case. We also now have access to the agreement between the Canadian Hockey League, which is the overseeing body for the three leagues, and the NHL. And that's never been uh, made available to the public before. And when you read this agreement, the NHL agreement, first thing, they pay over $11 million to the CHL each year. That's the NHL. And on top of that, it's a very integrated agreement which goes into great detail about how the players can move between this, the, the WHL and the NHL, play some games in the NHL, come back to the WHL. Right. And there's all sorts of rules and regulations. And they're so fully integrated, it's crystal clear that they work together as one economic unit who are in the business of, uh, of um, producing NHL hockey players. 
and working together in that area, which we again say is evidence that we have an employment relationship because effectively the players are professional. Well, they're either it, yeah. semi-professional or they're professional, depending on which day of the week it is. One day they're playing on an NHL team, the next day they're back playing for their WHL team. Look, there, I mean, there's obviously a legal principle here that needs to be decided. In terms of the, the impact of this, if it turns out that the teams fold as a result, that there are fewer teams, fewer spots available, uh, less opportunities for scholarships, etc., w- would these players necessarily be better off? Well, first of all, I don't accept, with all due respect, your preface. I think it's an idle threat that is being projected by the leagues as a way of defending these cases because, in my my respectful opinion, they don't have a defense on the merits. So they have to resort to these tactics where they put a fear factor into everyone's minds. Mm -hmm. The actual education benefits which the players receive vary from a low of $50,000 a year for for some clubs to as much as $120,000 a year for other clubs. When you look at the revenues of these clubs, the actual amounts they're paying out in education benefits every year are respectfully, they're, they're peanuts. And that's the big stick that the leagues have, that they're going to have to reduce these education benefits. Well, that's, it's just not the case. They're not paying anywhere near what they're claiming they're paying. They keep touting this contingent liability, which is not what they're really paying. It's what they might theoretically have to pay if every player on every team were to use their education benefit which is not the case. So, And as for the teams failing, again, realistically, is the NHL going to let one of the leagues fail or some of their clubs fail? Not likely. The NHL needs these players to be developed. Are the smaller clubs going to have to pay more money? Sure. But sometimes what happens is the smaller clubs move to bigger markets. Or there's also $26 million being collected right now by the CHL every year from corporate sponsorships, which they then have the right to distribute amongst the clubs in the three leagues, $26 million. And they're not distributing it all. They're only distributing about 11 of it. The rest of it, the CHL is using for other types of programs that they're running, like something called sponsorship and rights fees, for which they spent $8.5 million a year. Minimum wage across the three leagues would be achievable, especially when you're only worried about the smaller clubs being able to have to come up with extra money to afford it. The bigger clubs can absorb 300000 even though their financial statements say they're losing money. I don't buy it. The smaller ones, it's going to be tight, but there's so much money going around at the CHL level, $26 million. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or a forensic accountant to figure this out. Give the smaller clubs a little bit more cash and everything goes ahead. And in exchange, the players become employees. They have player rights, employee rights. They're protected under employment legislation. And they get at least something for all of the work they perform for these clubs. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Ted Charney, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate him. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, take care. Ted Charney, he is the lawyer leading this lawsuit against the CHL. So in terms of how much they're making, I mean, it's sort of a separate question. I mean, either they're employees or they're not. If they're not employees, it doesn't matter. These teams could be making money hand over fist, losing money. It's a moot point. So it doesn't seem like a a legal defense. It's more of a court of public opinion sort of thing. Anyway, 403-974-8255 is our number. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.